walk through the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 7 still, and still at the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. In chapter 6, we saw uh, right before the Passover season, the feeding of the 5,000 plus, and the ministry of Christ, and in particular teaching of himself as the bread of life. We're now, when we stepped into chapter 7, we skipped over six months, and now it's the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover is in the season of the spring, as we know from, that's our Easter celebration, that's our Seder celebration. Uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was in the fall, uh, around October typically. And so John just skips over that, that we might um, come and see what's happening in this. And, and, and some of that feast celebration will be coming up next time. But in this, seat, in this time, the main point to recognize is because it's one of those key festivals, Jerusalem is packed with Israelites from all over Israel who are coming to worship. And so in that context, uh, we come to verses 25 to 36 of John chapter 7. And I'll read. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this, word, this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. The Christ cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does, this, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So once again, what, what John is doing is, is he takes us to the festival, and, and you'll notice he's, he's showing us responses to Christ. I've been trying to draw some distinctions for you between the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, and the crowd that was gathering. And we're introduced to a third group here. The, I think my translation says the citizens of Jerusalem, but literally the translation might be better, the Jerusalemites. Maybe that's too... Longer word to say. Uh, don't try and say it too quickly. But So there's three groups then. So we mentioned those who, some of them, uh, this is the, some of them which are of Jerusalem in my translation. The Jews were told, the Jewish leaders in verse 15, uh, marveled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? He's not one of us. He's not trained by one of our Jerusalem rabbis and one of our Jerusalem academy, academies. So they were looking at him as the authorities. You know, he's not in our approved system. That's the, the Jews. In verse 20 of chapter 7, we saw the people answered. Now it's just the crowd. 
Now, who's that? That's the crowd that's gathered from all over Israel, not the, not the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem, or not even just the Jerusalem citizens, but these are the people from Galilee and other regions who've gathered. The, the people answered and said, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Because he said, you're seeking to kill me. And so the crowd from Galilee is saying, what do you mean we're seeking to kill you? But now we hear what the Jerusalem residents say. Some of them from Jerusalem. And, And we're told, they said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? The crowd from Galilee didn't know the local talk. But the locals... They, they knew the talk. The local leaders, uh, the local citizens knew. You know, the rumor mill was running fast and, and word was getting out. There's talk in Jerusalem from the Sanhedrin. They want to kill Jesus. Again, the visitors who were just there for a few days for the fe- feast, they didn't know that. But the locals, the Jerusalemites, isn't this the one they're seeking to kill? But look, they said. And by the way, I keep mentioning in the Greek, often you can t- it'll, it'll tell you, is the answer yes or no. And so, um, is this not he whom they seek to kill? The Greek has the answer expected, yes. So you could even say, isn't this the one they're seeking to kill? In other words, that's their understanding. And then they answer, ask another question. Do the rulers indeed know? But, but he speaks boldly, they said. If they want to kill him, here he is. We have a problem in America lately of, of crime that's often public and rampant. And, and it seems like, what do they do anything? I saw something recently of a, I think it was in, well, I can't remember what city it was in, but some riot broke out and just a, a crowd came in and just, just started walking in and looting a 7-Eleven store, just taking everything off the shelves. And it's kind of frustrating. You can't get more public. It's not like someone snuck in. It's right there and, and they said, why aren't they doing anything? Well, they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Word is, the Sanhedrin wants to kill Jesus. Here he is. He's in the temple. That's where the Sanhedrin meets. Why aren't they doing anything? How can he speak so boldly, and yet they want to kill him? That doesn't make any sense. So then they ask the question, do the rulers know indeed this is truly the Christ? That's expecting, in the Greek, a negative answer. And so maybe you could better read that. They don't know that this is really the Christ, is it? In other words, I think that's kind of mockery. Why aren't they arresting him? They must know he's the Messiah. Snicker, snicker, uh, chuckle, chuckle. Uh, no, it's, this is kind of a, a backhanded slap of mockery of the leaders. Shocking, isn't it? Can you believe local citizens would mock their leaders for not following through on their announced plans? What have we been learning in Ecclesiastes? There's nothing new under the sun. So once again, they're making fun of the leaders. They want to grab him? He's right here. What are they doing? Oh, they must think he's the Messiah. Oh, yeah. You know, they're kind of chuckling to themselves. So, but what, what I want you to notice is, so often we might say, well, this is the Jewish response to Jesus. Well, that's just like saying, this is what, the, this is what Americans think about this. That's, we're not that homogenous. 
And then sometimes when I've been overseas and doing some of those teaching things, people will say, well, tell me what Americans think about this. I don't know how to answer that question. <laughs> Which Americans do you have in mind? I can tell you what I think. Well, here what we're seeing is reality. There's at least three different responses to Jesus. Hostility. He's a threat to our system. Um, the, the, the ambivalence that we'll see here. And some are actually taking, will take to faith, take to heart this message. We see that, this around us all the time. There's a blend of ideas and response to Jesus wherever we go. Well, in verse 27, however, okay, so again, this isn't the one that surely the, the Jewish leaders don't think this is the Messiah, do they? Verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, so this again, the, the, this is the Jerusalem crowd. They know the plot of the leaders. They wonder that they aren't doing anything. And that the Jerusalem crowd, not the whole crowd that's there, the local citizens say, well, we know where Christ, when Christ appears, he's just going to appear out of nowhere. We're not going to know where he's from. And so I hope you're thinking, wait a minute, is that what the Bible says? It's not. Do you remember right in that city, about 30 years before, when the wise men came to Jerusalem and they went to Herod the Great and said, where is he born king of the Jews? Remember Herod turned to the rabbis and said, where is Messiah supposed to be born? And they didn't say, oh, you don't understand King Herod. He's just going to appear out of nowhere. No. They opened up Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Oh, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, just five miles south. So where is this crowd? You know, what do they mean when, listen to what the crowd says. We know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now they might have been, that might have been a, kind of one of those Ideas, just that, that kind of, you know, a rumble around that maybe this, it's kind of built on a verse, maybe Malachi 3 1. Behold, God says, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Well, they might have taken that and say, oh, when Messiah comes, he's just going to show up on the scene. But they're not really taking all of Scripture together. I'm struck by that. Have you ever heard someone make a statement to you about, we all know what the Bible says about this or that, and they say it and you think, no, no that's not what the Bible says. <laughs> we all know, we don't know that, or maybe in lots of areas, right? Everybody knows that water runs uphill. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure about that. Wait, are you sure about that? You know, so it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how sometimes everybody knows something and actually that's not true. But this shows you how easy it is for, for people to embrace false views of even biblical concepts. So they're saying, though, they believe in a Messiah, but they've got this idea in their head of what they expect he's going to do, how he expects. And isn't that sort of it? People have some generic idea about God, heaven, salvation, but then they have their picture of what that we know is. Can you think of in your mind? Can you think of some 
commonly accepted ideas that really aren't true about the Bible? How about the Bible verse? God helps those who help themselves. I'll wait while you go on your phone and see if that's in there. Uh, you know, and, and some people are shocked. Because, what? That's not in there? Um, or how about, and I remember hearing about a preacher that actually quoted in a sermon. The Bible says, cleanliness is next to godliness. And of course, we know some of these verses, they're all in Third Hezekiah. You know, that's where we kind of joke. And you saw that to some people, and they start looking for Hezekiah, Third Hezekiah. Which one? I can't even find First Hezekiah. It's, it's not in there, okay? And, and so the problem is there are these ideas out there that people just, oh, yeah, of course we know that. Oh, then there's the, the, the mo, what is the most, okay, we might think the most famous verse in the world is John 3.16 because you watch football and they've got it on their eyelids. Not true. The most famous verse in the world is, judge not lest you be judged. Isn't that commonly quoted? And so they say, see, any act, of, any judgment, oh, that's, God condemns that. Well, you have to understand what he means by judgment, that prideful uh, condemnation of others. Because Jesus, the same one who said, judge not lest you be judged, says, judge a tree by its fruit. What does he mean by that? You want to find out the character of a tree, look at the fruit it produced. But again, Jesus isn't, you know, quoting Neil Sperry. Uh, he's not teaching horticulture there. He's teaching, he's teaching spiritual truth. When he's talking about trees, he's talking about people, not trees. And it's fruit. He's talking about how they live, the, their character and their works. But what he is saying is, you can find out the, the true nature of a person by what they say and do. Not just their profession. But, but you see, here's my point. Oh, oh, you're never supposed to judge. You can't make moral judgments on others. That's what the Bible says. Jesus said, oh, yes, you should. But don't do it in a condemning and self-righteous way. That's the context. I've heard it argued, taught. Well, in the New Testament, we, God is presented as loving, but in the Old Testament, he's not. He's a God of wrath. So the God of the Old Testament is very different from the God of the New Testament. And your first thought should be, wait a minute, God wrote both books. You're wrong. And, and, and you can see that a thousand different ways. Read the book of Hosea. Read, what is, the greatest, what is God's greatest command? You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. That's Old Testament. But again, but that concept is out there. Oh, that Old Testament, that's, that God is terrible. No, that's, that's the God Jesus says is his father, and that's the God Jesus is. Probably the saddest popular misconception is everybody's going to heaven. I think we heard when one of our Sunday school lessons recently, you know, what's the way to get, how do you get to heaven? You die. That's what everybody says. But it's not what the Bible says. But, but my point is, here's a good picture. 2,000 years ago, in the land of the Bible, in the language of the Bible, in the city of Jerusalem, it was easy for the crowd to buy into misconceptions that are totally unbiblical. What's the solution to that? The key to avoiding such fallacies, false thinking, error, is instead of listening to the crowd, 
Make sure you are, you are seeking sound biblical teaching. May I recommend uh, Terra Bible Church might be a, a good place to consider going for such things. That's why we emphasize Bible. So when I'm telling you, I don't want you coming out and saying, well, Drake says this. I want you coming out. He showed me right there on the verse. You can look at your own Bible or phone or whatever you might be and say, he showed me right there. That's where it says that. You could underline it right while you're at it. Be grounded in the scriptures and these ideas that sound so good won't sweep you away because they're popular or because they're presented in such a wonderfully uh, beautiful way. What does the Bible say? We had a Bible study at the dorm one time, and that was our constant refrain. When It was a very diverse group, and it was a dormitory, and it was students from all over the world were in, in this study. The only limitation is you, most people there said they were Christians, and you had to know English. And so, uh, but, but one of the common questions we would challenge each other was, what is written? In other words, okay, that's an interesting idea. Show it to me in the Bible. And it was wonderful sometimes to, for, to watch people say, even challenge themselves, but what's written? I don't like this idea, but what's written? But, see, so, but we see here the masses buying into error. Oh, well, the, when Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll just show up on the scene. You're just not reading your Bible. And so that's a problem today as well. So Jesus responds in verses 28 and 29. Jesus cried out, we're told. There's only a few places, less than a half dozen places in the New Testament where we're told Jesus cried out. But in other words, he lifts his voice. Once again, he's not, he wasn't kind of secretly teaching in a little corner of the temple. Right there in the courtyard, in a place filled. Hundreds of thousands of people have flooded Jerusalem, maybe a couple of million for the festival. And he cries out for all to hear. He says, you both know me and know where I am from. Because remember, they just said when Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he's from. He's just going to show up. And so Jesus cries out, you know me. You know where I am from. It's not really clear exactly why he's saying that. Is he challenging them? You think you know where I'm from. You think I'm from it. You think I'm from Nazareth, don't you? Fooled you. Um, or is he? He's saying, "Yeah, you you know my background. You know where I'm from. I, I'm not just appearing on the scene." But here's what he goes on to say: "I have not come of myself, but He who sent me is true, whom you do not know. You may know, think you know." my family and background, but you don't know where I came from. I know him. I am from him. And he sent me. So the best they knew about Jesus, even if they knew it was right, we know his, you know, again, this is Jerusalem, not Capernaum, not at Galilee, but they might have said, well, we know his family. We, we hear they're from, he's from Nazareth and his father's a carpenter and he's got brothers and sisters. They're, they're here at the festival. But he says, you don't know the whole truth. They only had a partial truth. They may have thought of him, and they constantly introduce him. Matter of fact, it's even on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Well, that's his hometown. But he wasn't born there. 
He wasn't born there. And actually, they should have been able, if they wanted to, to check the records. And remember the census and all of that? It's all right there. Parents, Joseph, Mary, birthplace, Bethlehem. But ultimately, he's not from Bethlehem. He keeps saying again and again, I came down. I came here. My father sent me. He keeps pointing them to heaven and to his father. He's continually trying to take their eyes and, and, and point them to the Father. He's even saying, here's Jesus who's coming to die for them. But once he keeps emphasizing, I'm doing my Father's will. I'm teaching my Father's word. My Father sent me. Who's he want them to think about? He's turning their hearts to the Lord. Whatever they may know of Jesus, they don't know his father. That's what he says. You don't know him. You do. These are Jews in Jerusalem coming to worship the God of the Bible. And he announces to the crowd, you don't know the one you're worshiping. And isn't that sad? I think across our land, across the world, how many are, are, are going into churches today... But they don't know the God that that church really represents. But Jesus does know. And what he's saying is, if you listen to me, if you follow me, you will know my Father. Again, I I think we need to learn from this. You know, we can easily get caught up in earthly issues. Those people, there was so much political and, and... you know, all this kind of conflict going on. But it's around us, too. It's, in, it's a part of our daily life. In our Sunday school class, we're watching a, a lesson by R.C. Sproul on the book of Ecclesiastes. And he said something that sh- just showed how old the video is. He talked about reading a newspaper. And he talked about, oh, he, he, he liked to go out. And he, they was, he was staying in a hotel, and he went out and looked for the newspaper that's supposed to be at the door. And he was really disappointed it wasn't there. And I thought... Most people aren't going to go out there today in a hotel and say, I wonder what the newspaper says. You don't want to do that. Your hands get all inky. No, they're, they're firing up their phone. Some before they even get out of the horizontal position. And we know everything. And, and, it, and, and we know nothing. But we get easily caught up in all that stuff. But we need, Jesus is, is telling us, you can get so busy with all that stuff. That you don't think in terms of eternity. You don't think in terms of heaven. You don't think in terms of, of God. I mean, think about the crowds around you. I mean, think about the, all the chatter on the radio and all the, all the chatter on the, the, the websites or whatever you may follow and, and anti-social media. Um, how little of it really points you to God. Now, some, I'm, I will admit, there, there are, you know, some that will really try to remind us again of God. But it's easy with all that to get swept away. And Jesus is constantly reminding us. He's saying, get your eyes off what you think you know. Look to the Father. Look to the Father. There's a lot going on in this world. My question is, what's the Father doing? 
What's the Father want me to do? That's what really matters. Whatever else may be happening around us, keeping our eyes on him. And, that's, and so Jesus, in a, a temple, in, in the temple of Jerusalem, and the festival of, of booths, he's trying to tell people, by the way, look to God. It's kind of like Memorial Day here. The Memorial Day is just to remember how do we start the barbecue. You know, that's what we're trying to remember. You know, have you noticed we so often, what is a sacred day of remembering those who have died for our country is often completely forgotten. We talk about it as a time of hot dogs and hamburgers. Or other times as well. Thanksgiving Day increasingly has nothing to do. It's, it's, it's the opposite of Thanksgiving. You're thinking um, Black Friday or Black whatever it is these days. Getting a good deal. The lack of gratitude. And Jesus is just saying, wait a minute. Look back to God. You don't know him. So we've seen the reactions of the crowd, the, the general crowd, the Jerusalem crowd, and now we're going to see Jesus, the reaction to Jesus from the leadership. Verse 2. They, therefore they sought to take him. Remember the leaders, they was who they were talking about. They, they sought to take him, but no one laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So now the leaders are saying, here he is. The crowd's murmuring. Let's do something. Let's get him. And so I'm not saying they necessarily sent the police right there to grab him, but, but now they start the process of let's grab him. They did try. It says, but they couldn't. Not because of the crowd, not because of the weather, not because of union negotiations with the temple police. It wasn't Jesus' time. That's why I chose, by the way, the, the reading for Ecclesiastes. You know, there's a, there's a time for this and a time for this. Well, Jesus is very clear of the time, and he has the advantage. He knew the calendar. You know, my calendar for tomorrow, I've got things written on it, but I'm not going to guarantee those, any of that's going to happen. But it wasn't Jesus' time yet. Here he's in Jerusalem. He's avoided because they want to kill him. Now he's there, but it won't be until the next, it won't be sick till the next Passover. Six months later in Jerusalem, they'll kill him. But right now, it's not his time, so they can't seize him. Jesus was safe because of God's sovereign care and plan. He was there in the temple, and, and, and yet they couldn't touch him because it wasn't God's timing. You know, we are under the same sovereign God, the same loving care. Now, as I say that, Jesus knew it was God's time to show up in the temple. Don't say, well, I'm going to die when God says it so I can ignore stop signs and I can ignore uh, traffic laws. I, you know, I'm indestructible. You, uh, then like quoting a verse, you shall not test the Lord your God. You know, it's not our place to just presume upon his protection. You know, we're to use means and, and wisdom. But the reality is God keeps us safe. We can have assurance we are kept by and for God's purposes. Again, one of the writers of, of old I like very much was J.C. Ryle. He says this in his commentary on, the, on, in, on this section. The very hairs of their heads are all numbered. Sorrow and sickness and poverty and persecution can never touch God's people unless God sees fit. They may boldly say to every cross, 
You could have no power against me except it were given you from above. Then let them work on confidently. They are immortal until their work is done. Let them suffer patiently if needs be that they suffer. Their times are in God's hand, quoting Psalm 31:15. That hand guides and governs all things here below and makes no mistakes. What he's saying is we are immortal. Our time is appointed until God's purposes for us are complete. We're kept here alive. We can trust him for that. We need not fear. Truly, we could say from God's perspective, no one dies prematurely. We die when God's purposes for us are finished. Psalm 139 says he writes our our, our times in the book before we're, before we're born. I quoted before Stonewall Jackson, and here's what he said. You know, the uh, Civil War general, believer, godly man. My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle, battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that. But to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. So he wasn't afraid of death, but he, and he didn't worry about when that was going to happen. His job was just be faithful, but be ready to die now. Again, I was rebuked about not using enough Spurgeon quotes, so let me quote from Spurgeon, I think quoting someone else. He says, plagues and deaths around me fly till he bids, I cannot die. Not a single shaft can hit. So the God of love thinks fit. Of course, thinking of Psalm 91. Jesus was safe from the plots of the Pharisees and Sadducees because God appoints the timing. His task, be faithful. His calling right then was be in the temple preaching. Then verses 31 and 2. Many of the people believed in him. And said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring and these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. So even in the midst of all the deniers and scoffers and murderous plotters, there are some who still believed. When the Christ comes, will he do more miracles? In other words, what they're saying is, look at the Bible. The Bible says Messiah will do miracles. Look at what Jesus has done. Who's ever heard of Healing the one born blind. Healing a leper. Healing the paralytic. Raising the dead. Multiplying food like manna. What more could a Messiah do? And so they're saying, he's fulfilling the prophecies. Again, they understand what Jesus called them signs. He wasn't doing miracles just to be merciful. He wasn't doing miracles to put on a show. He was doing miracles to, to point God's verification. This is the Messiah as promised. What's the, that's the, so, so some in the crowd are saying, this has got to be the Messiah. So you can imagine. Here, here it is, this large group, all kinds of people, and there's all kinds of opinions flying away. No, no, Messiah's just going to show up. And they're saying, look at what he's been doing. Is Messiah going to do more than... See, this is all going... And apparently, notice it's kind of... uh, Verse 32 tells us the crowd was murmuring. Again, this is... 
the Pharisees and Sadducees and Romans, kind of, this, this was an oppressed situation. You find in, in times of oppression and persecution, people kind of talk discreetly and say, uh, they're talking, but they're murmuring among themselves and there's this back and forth. But the Pharisees heard the crowds murmuring and decided, we've got to do something. And so they, they, that spurred them on to seek to seize Jesus. And then you see they, they, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers. That would be the, the temple guards. And this is interesting. You hear about a um, um, cross the, the aisle in the Congress where both, this is Democrat and Republican are working together. And usually it's like, that's very little they can do. Pharisees were the, you know, the rabbinic group. The Sadducees were the, mostly in the temple. So when you see the Pharisees and chief priests, what you're saying is Pharisees and Sadducees are, are joining hands. They both want Jesus gone. And again, this is a very strange situation. This is like saying the Russians and Ukrainians agreed on, a pro, on, on something they need to do. Very unusual situation. That's what a threat they saw Jesus to the status quo. But let me just say, we need to follow the example of some of these in the crowd. What were they doing? They're thinking biblically. The Bible said prophets going to do uh, the Messiah is going to do miracles and laid out many of them. And they're seeing them happening in front of them. And so they believed. They were willing to consider the claims of Christ and measure them biblically and from historical evidence. And so let me just say, if, if you're still considering the the claims of Christ have yet to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Look at some of these and learn from them. Be honest. Evaluate the claims of Christ biblically. Is this what the, the Bible said Messiah is going to be like? If you're honest, you're going to say check. I, I, evaluate them historically. And, 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 we, and Jesus is a historical person and we have incredible record Evaluate who this Jesus is. Does he fit what the scripture says? And I will tell you, if you're honest with yourself, you'll have to say, check, believe. But here's a warning. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are more worried about what the crowd thinks and more worried about the status quo than faithfulness to God. It is so easy to get caught up with what does the crowd say? If I say, say I follow Jesus, I, I'm going to be swimming upstream. I'm going to be out of step with everyone around me. I would agree with you. To follow Jesus is to be out of step with the crowd. And there's something in us that says, I want to be in step with the crowd. It's kind of like if you see a a flock of sheep all running across the field. If you were to pull out just one right in the middle and say, where are you going? And he'd say, I don't know, but I'm going with them. That's, we, we tend to be that way. I'm saying that because everybody else is saying it. And, Jesus, and, and we need to learn from these that say, well, wait a minute, what does is, what is the evidence point to? Jesus is the Messiah. How do I respond to that? Trust in him. 
Well, Jesus then goes on to announce, makes an announcement about his plans. Verse 33, Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. He's talking about six months hence, he's going to die on a cross. So I'm, I, you've got six months. He doesn't even tell them six months. He says, but in, in the big scheme of things, just a little bit of time, I'm, then I'm out of here. That's the loose translation. But what he's announcing is the plans of the Pharisees and Sadducees cannot overcome God's plan. He's going to leave when it's God's time, and he's going to go where God says. But God's plan will yield Jesus into the hands of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Romans for execution. That's God's plan. But it will happen on God's timing, God's way. And so six months ahead, right on the day of Passover, Jesus will fulfill God's plan from eternity past. His death is not a failure. It's accomplishing God's purpose. There are those that say, well, you know, the, Jesus' death was just a terrible tragedy. And all we can learn is try and be loving like Jesus was. That's a secularist. There are cults and false religions that say Jesus failed his mission. If you've ever heard of Reverend Sun Myung Moon or the Moonies or the Unification Church, that's exactly what they teach. Jesus was to come to earth and marry and have children and establish a holy family. He failed. He failed when he died on the cross. And Reverend Sun Myung Moon is, is now called to fulfill what Jesus could not accomplish. That's what the teachings of the Unification Church is. Of course, he has now died and his wife has picked up. Troubling to me is to see evangelicals supporting her work come back for the prophetic update but there are evangelicals that will speak on her behalf um, to say what a wonderful woman mother moon is she's the heavenly parent that Jesus was meant to be but my point is Jesus will die but that won't be a failure that's fulfillment of God's plan in God's time I mean, I say that's true of each of us. The vast majority of us, I, I, I believe, well, I don't know what to believe. The normal plan of history is we die, and, and that's how we get to heaven. And I say the normal plan is there is a generation in which Christ will come. The trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise. And in every generation, it's been their hope. Paul often talked, we who are alive, he said he thought he'd be in that crowd. He was close. He was at least 2,000 years off. That's the hope of the faithful. To be among those who are alive and remain and caught up to meet the Lord. But historically speaking, the norm is we die. But that's how we get to heaven. What Jesus said, I'm going to be here a little while and then I'm going to go home to my father. That's our story. We're going to be here for a little while longer and then we'll go home to our father if we know Christ as Savior. On August 22nd, 1683, so tomorrow's the anniversary, going back to 1683, at his home in Ealing, a suburb of western London, 
the great theologian John Owen dictated his last surviving letter to his longtime friend, Charles Fleetwood. So we're talking back in 1683. I've mentioned it before, the prince of theolo- uh, the, 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 the theologian of the Puritans. He said, I'm going to him whom my soul hath loved, or rather, hath loved me with an everlasting love, which is in the whole ground, which is the whole ground of my, all my consolation. The passage is very irksome and wearisome through strong pain of various sorts which are all issued in an intermitting fever. Now we don't write like that, but what he's saying is, I'm going home to Papa. Frankly, the journey right now is tough. Fever, pain, and sorrow. But I'm going home. And that's how we get home. Except for the rapture. What did, you, what, what did Paul say for me? To die is gain. To live is Christ. Even better, to die in his presence. Uh, here's from John Quincy Adam. One, on, on the day of his 80th birthday, he was approached by a friend who said, And how is John Quincy Adams today? The former president of the United States replied graciously, Thank you. John Quincy Adams is well, sir, quite well, I thank you. But the house in which he lives at present is becoming dilapidated. Now, some of you will start taking to heart what he says. It is tottering upon its foundations. Time and seasons have nearly destroyed it. Its roof is pretty well worn out. Its walls are much shattered and it trembles with every wind. The old tenement is becoming almost uninhabitable, and I think John Quincy Adams will have to move out of it soon. But he himself is quite well, sir. Quite well. And with that, holding his cane, he continued to walk on. That's the spirit of a believer. I'm heading home. What do I expect of this body? It's going to fail me. It might fail me quite suddenly, mercifully, if that's getting us home. Or it might be a, the gradual tottering and collapsing that is too often the norm. It will happen in God's time, in God's way. And that God over, who is sovereign over all of it is our Abba Father. We can trust him. And know his love has planned the course. And, 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 and his course will be different for each and every one of us. Our task is to be faithful and to glorify and serve him in that chosen path. He said, you're going to seek me and not find me where I am. You cannot come. So when he goes to his father, they'll no longer be trying to kill him. He'll be gone. They can't get their hands on him. But notice the sad reality. And when I die, where I am, you cannot come. He's speaking to the ones who will kill him. Because they've rejected him, they have no access to heaven. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so he looks these religious leaders in the face and says, where I'm going, you can't come. 
because they've rejected him. The Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we should not find him? Is he, going to, is he going to go to the dispersion? Is he going to go out of Israel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, and teach the Greeks? Is he going to go out and start preaching to the Gentiles because we won't listen? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So, so they're mocking him. What, he's going to go to the Gentiles? Yeah, right, we're not going to follow him there. And they're mocking the idea of him leaving. They're mocking the idea that we, they can't go where he's going. They're basically mocking hell because that's where they're going to go instead. Reminds me of a story I heard some time ago. A gentleman on Long Island was making, this was, I'm reading from something here that's written in, I think, in the 1800s. So some time ago, some time ago. And he was making too free with the Bible and brought forward his strong argument against it, declaring in the face of all present, I am 70 years of age. So he was a young man. And have never seen such a place as hell after all that has been said about it. I'm 70 years old. I haven't seen any sign of hell. His little grandson of about seven years of age, who was all the while listening to the conversation, asked him, Granddad, have you ever been dead yet? And the seven-year-old slices through the prideful arguments of the old man. Oh, those who boast about hell. Folly. Folly. Flee to Christ. There's an irony. Oh, what's he going to do? Go to the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles? Guess what the followers of Jesus are going to end up doing? Going into the diaspora, going out of Israel... First to the synagogues and then to the Gentiles and preaching Christ. What they mock him for will actually be accomplished by the followers of Jesus. Well, the text before us is showing us different responses to Jesus. Some are buying into whatever the popular misconceptions are and and so they're not going to consider the claims of Christ. There's a lot of that today. Some, he is a direct affront to their religious traditions. Have you ever talked to someone about Christ? And they say, no, no, thank you. I've got my religion. Now, that doesn't fit that. And you want to say, I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about Jesus Christ and the Bible. No, no, thank you. Not interested. That's, that, was the, that was the Pharisees. We have our set system. You're not going to interrupt it. Even if you do come from God. So there's the crowd that's following every popular idea. There's the... The Pharisees, you're not, going to, you're not going to take our feet off out of our religion. But there were some who saw the claims of Christ as in, their, in their reality and said, can't this be the Messiah? And they believed. Again, I would say, if you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, where are you in that spectrum? Don't. Be hardened in in, in a religious system that rejects the realities of Scripture. Don't follow the crowd in their folly that buys every theory that comes along except what the Bible teaches. If you have debt to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, seriously, go to your Scriptures and complain. Consider the claims of Christ. The Gospel of John would be a great place to do that. For those of us who know Christ as Savior... 
take confidence from our Lord's response to all of it. My times are in his hands. From Psalm 31. He has a plan for me. And though it may be a difficult plan, though there may be sorrows and pain in the plan, it's a good plan because my loving Father chose it for me. And if there are sorrows and if there are pains, my Father wants to use that in my life and in the lives of others. But if I know Jesus Christ as Savior, in a little while, I'll be home with Father. And that will happen in his good time. Father, thank you that we can trust your sovereign hand over time. Your sovereign hand over the events of our life. Give us, Father, peace and assurance of that. Father, I pray for any who are wrestling with that in their own life right now. Either in their life or with those in their lives. Father, give us a trust in your will and your way. And how I pray, Father, that each and every one hearing these words would join and be with those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have a home with you. Father, if any who hear this have yet to believe, awaken them to the folly of rejecting the call of Christ. I pray this in his blessed name. Amen.